Everyone, my name is Beth, uh, and I'm going to read the Bible. We are reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Um, it's on page 967 of the blue books in your pews, or it should be on the screen or in your own Bible. Jesus is tested in the wilderness. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell those stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command the angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said if you bow down and worship me. But Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and angels came and attended to him. Speaking of angels, Lauren is going to come and speak to us this evening. (laughs) Uh, Isn't she lovely? Um, I'm going to pray for you as you speak. Uh, Thank you, Lord God, for Lauren and the place uh, she has in our church um, and the place she has in our lives. As a servant of you and a minister of your word, we just um, pray for her speech tonight, uh, that you will guide her every breath and her every word, and uh, that we will be encouraged by her and by your word, um, and that, yeah, she will really speak life uh, through this passage and uh, through your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Beth. Good evening, everyone. I'm going to going to sit down tonight, if that's okay. Uh, full disclosure, just having some mild issues with my blood pressure at the moment. Uh, and while, you know, it's good for preaching to be dramatic, um, I thought I probably would spare us tonight the suspense of whether or not I'm going to faint mid-sermon. Let's just take that off the table. I'm going to sit down um, and we'll just proceed as normal. Well, hello, uh, for those who may not know me. My name is Lauren. I'm one of the pastors here at Q Baptist Church, and it's a great privilege to be speaking with you this evening on this the final Sunday of summer, uh, which, if you're me, is cause for great rejoicing. Um, I do not thrive in the heat. Uh, it's another good reason that I'm sitting down, because I'm a fainting risk. Um, but I'm so looking forward to autumn. Uh, it is just objectively the best season. I, no, it is objectively the best season, because if you are looking for a season of weather that is the best for the most people, it has to be autumn right? Because it's not too hot for people who don't cope in the heat, like me. It's not too cold if you struggle with winter. And unlike spring, it does not come with hay fever, right? Instead, it comes with a beautiful spectrum of leaves. Anyway, I'm not here to do a TED talk on the seasons of weather. Um, Here to preach a sermon. Uh, But speaking of seasons, segue. Uh, This week brings another significant season. Uh, This Wednesday is the beginning of Lent. Lent, the 
the six-week lead-up to Easter as we prepare to commemorate the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And Lent is usually a a sort of reflective and and somber season, uh, typified by uh, prayer and fasting. Um, You may have heard of people giving up things for the 40 days of Lent. Maybe it's something you've even done yourself. Uh, People give up, you know, like chocolate or, or coffee or social media, you know, fasting from certain things as a way to guess, make space to more intentionally seek God through prayer, um, to ready our hearts and minds uh, for once again encountering the cross of Christ at Easter. And the, you know, the origins of Lent, I think it was formalized in the church in about the fourth century, uh, but it was inspired by all the way back to the life of Jesus uh, from the gospel account that we've just had read for us and Jesus' 40 days of prayer and fasting in the wilderness. So, Since we are heading into Lent this week, it seemed like a timely opportunity for us to take a closer look at this narrative in what is really a defining chapter at the outset of Jesus' ministry. Uh, It comes right after Jesus has been baptised by John, and it comes right before Jesus begins his formal preaching of the good news of the kingdom. So it's clearly a significant marker in understanding uh, the nature and the purpose of Jesus' ministry. So if you've got a Bible handy, I encourage you to keep it open. Uh, We're going to start by just walking through the narrative together. I want to make a few observations along the way, um, and then we're going to step back and take a look at the broader picture. So we start with the scene being set for us with this opening description of the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness. So Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So while the devil does the actual tempting or testing, uh, it's important to note that it's God that has the initiative, the intention, the agency in this episode. You know, it's not that Jesus has fallen victim to some demonic scheme. You know, he's undergoing this period of testing in accordance with the will of the Father. He is there under the will of the Father. And that's a key point to hold on to as we move our way through this passage So the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days, 40 nights, and understandably, he is hungry. So the enemy comes at him in that place of need and says, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, it's important to clarify here that the word if in that sentence, if you are the Son of God, uh, in the Greek, that same word could also be understood as since, since you are the Son of God. So the statement from the devil is not actually questioning or doubting Jesus' identity as the Son of God. It's actually assuming it to be fact, and he's proposing this action in light of this fact. You know, the inference is essentially, well, since you are the Son of God and therefore would have the power to turn these stones to bread, why not do it? You know, you have the power, satisfy your hunger, use it to your own advantage and help yourself. But Jesus abstains, and instead he responds by quoting scripture, and I actually want to read now just the fuller context of the quotation that Jesus is drawing from here. It's from Deuteronomy, uh, where Moses is handing down God's law to the people of Israel. Reading from Deuteronomy 8, from verse 2, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
So you can probably see already there's these layers of significance to this choice of quotation from Jesus. You know, it's he's undergoing his 40 days of testing in the wilderness. He's recalling the parallel experience of Israel and their 40 years in the wilderness where they were challenged to trust in God's faithful provision. They were challenged to heed the word of the Lord first and foremost and to not be consumed by chasing after their, their physical or material needs. So what we see in Jesus' response to the devil here is essentially him choosing to heed the word of the Lord. As we saw at the start of the passage, you know, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit. You know, he's fasting and he's now hungry because that's the will of the Father for this time. So his refusal to create bread for himself is really an act of obedience to the Father. So we move on to the second temptation, and it's a real devious change in tactic from the enemy here. Uh, He takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, do you see the progression here? In the first test, the devil challenged Jesus to provide for his own needs. You know, make yourself some bread, take care of yourself. But Jesus rebuffed him by quoting scripture and emphasizing his faith in the provision and care of God the Father. So now the devil is using that as the basis for this next test. Well, since God cares for you, throw yourself down and God will save you. Not only that, the devil now resorts to quoting scripture himself and he cherry picks this little excerpt from Psalm 91 to try and persuade Jesus on the cause. But of course, Jesus responds with a scripture quotation of his own and it's once again taken from that same section of Deuteronomy of Moses addressing the Israelites. It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Actually, the full verse from Deuteronomy says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. It's actually referring to a specific incident from the Israelites' time in the wilderness where they were questioning if God was truly among them and they were demanding the provision of water as a sign. So we've got, haven't we, another Israelite wilderness parallel and it's also another demonstration of Jesus choosing obedience to the Father's will above all else. Then we have the third temptation, the enemy showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and saying, all this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. And this draws the most direct rebuke from Jesus in the encounter. He says, away from me, Satan. And he backs it up with yet another quote from that same chunk of Deuteronomy. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, if you know anything about the history of Israel in the Old Testament, you will know that this was a frequent and critical point of failure for the Israelites. But once again, in this wilderness parallel where Israel stumbled in defeat, Jesus now triumphs in victory and he stands firm and remains true to the Father. And this brings an end to the encounter. We read that the devil then leaves Jesus and the angels come and attend to him. Now, there's a lot that we can unpack from this narrative, um, but tonight I really want to focus in on the nature of these temptations, you know, what it is that the enemy was really getting at and what we can understand from Jesus' response. 
Because when I think, when we think about temptation generally, we often define it as being tempted to do bad things, right? Like we might be tempted to share a piece of gossip. Uh, We might be tempted to consume content that's unhelpful for our thought life. We might be tempted to lie or to cheat, you know, things that in and of themselves are universally considered to be bad, you know, to be inherently sinful or hurtful regardless of their context. But when we look at this encounter of Jesus and the situations posed to him, you know, on face value, they aren't all inherently wrong actions or outcomes, right? I mean, Jesus isn't being tempted into sexual immorality. Uh, He isn't being tempted to exercise his divine powers by killing someone. I mean, in the first instance, he is simply asked to make some bread. And, you know, whatever your relationship is with carbs at the moment, uh, you simply cannot argue that Jesus making bread is in and of itself a bad thing. Uh, And one of the reasons we know that is because just a few chapters later, Jesus does make bread. Uh, Matthew 14, the feeding of the 5,000. We see Jesus blessing the small number of loaves and he divinely multiplies enough bread to feed the masses, including himself and the disciples. So clearly nothing wrong on face value of Jesus making bread. Similarly, in the second test, the enemy is seeking to provoke a display of God's protective power, to see God command his angels to attend to Jesus. Again, this is not inherently wrong and in fact it's exactly what happens at the end of this passage after the devil leaves Jesus we read that the angels come and attend to Jesus you know it's perfectly in keeping with God's character to send his angels to attend to his son then we have the third test this one is obviously different because here the devil is asking Jesus to worship him and that is an inherently bad thing. Uh, Regardless of context, there is nothing excusable or benign about that particular proposition. I want to be very clear about that. But there is another component of this temptation. Uh, The enemy is tempting Jesus with having all the kingdoms of the world. And if we take just that part in isolation, like the notion of Jesus reigning over the world, I mean, not only is that not a bad thing, it's the divine endgame. I mean, we read in the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Like we know Jesus to be King of kings, Lord of lords. The government is on his shoulders. But crucially, this kingdom rule, this authority, it's given to Jesus on the Father's terms. You know, it's not the quick idolatrous shortcut that the devil's trying to lure him with. Oh, you can have the world. All you have to do is worship me. No, Jesus knew that he had a different path to take. One of self-denial and suffering. One that led all the way to the cross. Yet not my will, but yours be done, he prayed to the Father. For he knew what it truly meant to be the Son of God. And this is really the heart of what we're looking at here. You know, it's no coincidence that this temptation narrative comes straight after the account of Jesus' baptism. You know, where Jesus had come up out of the water and we hear this voice from heaven say, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. You know, we have this dramatic declaration of Jesus being the son of God. And then what immediately follows is this series of testings, each aimed at distorting the very nature of this sonship. 
Yeah, we see the enemy coming at Jesus. If you are the son of God, well, since you are the son of God. You know, as we said earlier, these statements are not questioning the reality of his sonship identity, but rather seeking to distort it. You know, challenging Jesus on what it means to be the son of God. Tempting him to, to misuse his status, to subvert his purpose. Are you the son of God? Create your own food. You don't have to suffer in hunger. You're the son of God. Yeah, live dangerously. Put on a show. God will save you. You want to rule the world? Oh, just worship me. I'll give all the kingdoms to you. These testings were less about what Jesus was being tempted to do and much more about who Jesus was called to be. At their core, these temptations are seeking to distort Jesus' identity and purpose as the Son of God. They're distorting the nature of sonship. And this isn't an isolated instant. You know, confusion over Jesus' identity plagued him throughout his earthly ministry. Because people had very different expectations of what they thought the Messiah should be. Many were expecting a powerful you know, political figure who would be bringing an end to the Roman tyranny and restoring the kingdom to Israel. So when they saw Jesus hanging on a cross at Calvary, vulnerable, suffering, dying, it was so fundamentally incompatible to their messianic expectations that they rejected and mocked his claim to sonship. We read in Matthew 27, the, the passers-by hurling up insults to Jesus as he died. Well, come down from the cross if you are the son of God. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. Sound familiar? If you are the son of God, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, let God rescue you. Now, the suffering Messiah subverted all worldly expectations of power. You know, the one who came not to be served, but to serve. You know, the one who died a, a gruesome, shameful death. You know, he didn't fit the mold of what the world or the culture expected. But it was through this Countercultural servanthood through this suffering and self denial, through this radical humility, that Jesus was able to fulfill God's ultimate redemption plan for all of humankind. The suffering Messiah was fundamental to the salvation of humanity. You know, if, if Jesus didn't have a firm understanding on what it truly meant to be the Son of God, he would never have made it to the cross. This is why it was so important for him to be firmly established in his identity and purpose right here at the outset of his ministry. Through this testing in the wilderness, Jesus demonstrates that he knew who he was and he knew his purpose. He understood the true nature of sonship. So what about us? How do we understand our identity, our purpose? Because as we see from this wilderness encounter, this is an area of life where the enemy is hard at work, whispering lies, 
distorting truths. And the insidious nature of these deceptions is that we can be fooled into thinking that the devil is merely concerned about the things that we do, you know, enticing us into specific sinful acts, where in fact, so often he's actually trying to attack the very core of who we think we are, our identity, our purpose. This is the narrative that he's trying to distort, because Who we think we are, what we understand about ourselves, it fundamentally impacts how we live our lives. I've shared this analogy in a sermon before, but I love it. Uh, The old fable of the eagle hatchling uh, who falls out of the nest. Uh, It's separated from its family and it gets taken in by a farmer who puts it in with his chooks. And so this eagle grows up among the chickens, uh, doing everything that they do, eating what they eat, pecking at the ground, scratching with his feet and, you know, never really flying. And then one day it looks up and he sees this majestic eagle just soaring through the sky and he looks up and thinks, wow, I wish I could fly. Even though he was an eagle, he thought he was a chicken and so that's how he lived. How we understand our identity fundamentally impacts how we live our lives. So if the enemy wants to throw us off course for the kingdom mission, kind of stands to reason that he's going to try and distort our true identity as kingdom people. The devil is going to try and tell us that our worth, our purpose is in this world, that we are defined and valued by our successes, our professional accomplishments, our academic achievements, the accumulation of wealth or status. That we're defined or valued by our relationships, by our popularity, by what other people think of us. And sometimes he's going to whisper to us that we're just not worth much at all. That we are defined by our failures, by our brokenness, that our identity is wrapped in shame. I'll confess, that's an internal narrative that I've been battling against for many years. You know, for a long time, I have struggled with low self-esteem and with a, with a toxic perfectionism that tells me that whatever I do just isn't quite good enough. And I've been particularly confronted by that in this ministry context because uh, I've found that one of the more devious schemes of the devil is that he can not only entice us to put our stock in worldly things, but he can also distort the way we look at godly things. And we can take good things like spiritual disciplines, prayer, reading the Bible, serving in ministry, going out on mission. We can take those good and godly things and start using them as a means of justifying our own worth, our own spiritual value, our own righteousness. This is something I really struggled with uh, back in 2020 when I was pregnant. Um, Some of you know, I was horrendously unwell. um, barely had the capacity to get out of bed each day, let alone do anything productive. Um, I had to take almost two months of sick leave uh, in the first trimester. And in that time away from work, I was really confronted by how much stock I was putting in my ministry output. How I'd been measuring my value to God by the things that I was doing for God. And so when those things were stripped away, 
when I was no longer at work and I was just spending my weeks lifeless on the couch, keeping a depressing tally of how many times I'd vomited that day, this tidal wave of worthlessness just rushed in. Because ever so cunningly, I was being lured to anchor my identity in godly things, but not in God himself. Friends, when the enemy is trying to sow those seeds of deception in your life, when he's coming at the very core of who you are, let's remember this encounter of Jesus. Jesus in the wilderness who demonstrates for us the best defense against this very scheme. He shows us the ultimate checkmate, the decisive knockout blow, and that is the word of God. For every sly maneuver and cunning tactic that the devil tries with Jesus, Jesus shuts him down with the truth of the word of the Lord. For he is the son of God and he is only going to define his sonship on the Father's terms and nothing else. In the same way, we need to hear the words of the Father to see ourselves the way that He sees us, to understand our identity and our purpose in the light of His truth. Romans 8 says, Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit we receive does not make us slaves so that we live in fear again. Rather, the spirit we received brought about our adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. You see, we too are beloved children of God. That is the core of who we are. We are made in his image, each one of us, carefully knitted together in our own mother's womb, wonderfully and fearfully made, intrinsically valued, the Father's loving creation. And more than that, through the blood of Jesus, through the salvation of Christ, we are made righteous, not from anything that we have done, but from what God has done for us. There is nothing that we have to earn or prove. There's no good Christian checkboxes that we have to tick. As it says in Ephesians 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is our identity, and this is our purpose, our calling You know, it doesn't rest on the sinking sand of this world. It's not tied up in the ephemeral pleasures of this lifetime. It rests on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And we are sons and daughters of the Most High, purposed for His glory, created to make much of our Creator, to declare His praises and shine His light to the world, 
to live out his kingdom mission in the all-sufficiency of his grace. This is who we are. So we need to arm ourselves with this truth. We need to plant our feet firmly in the word of God so that whenever the enemy tries to undermine our our worth, our identity, our calling, we can stand up like Jesus and say, away from me, Satan, for it is written, I am a child of God. I am who he says I am and my worth, my identity, my purpose, my hope is found in Christ alone. Jesus says in John 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's the nature of his sonship, to be obedient to the Father and to accomplish his kingdom work. Friends, as sons and daughters of the King, this is the glorious calling on our lives as well. To worship the Lord and serve Him only. To see His will be done and His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. For this is who we were made to be and this truly is where we will find the fullness of life. Won't you join me in prayer? Almighty Father, how great is the love that you have lavished on us, that we might be called children of God. And that is what we are. Lord, I pray that you would sing that glorious narrative of truth over every heart and mind here today, that this rousing chorus would overwhelm and drive out any lies of the enemy. Father, would you remind each person of their intrinsic worth as a beloved son or daughter and remind us of our purpose, our calling. Thank you for the example of Jesus, the servant king, whose obedience to the Father's will made a way for all of us to know your redemption. May we also seek to do your will to honour you with our lives. Oh Lord, would you inspire and encourage us afresh as we seek to live out your kingdom. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.